0: What's shaking good to have you back. I'm excited that we're all here together today. I'm Rick Jordan and today we're going all in. I want you to share this out with three people today because I was looking through the notes for the show ahead of time and it's a crazy crazy transition it from rare disease genetic research into dark web monitoring and some other things, you know, which identity theft, data breaches, all that, which is my wheelhouse, of course, along with everything else that I do being an autodidact or a polymath. Now, look those words up. We don't talk about those much either. My guest today is in Walnut Creek, California right now. I just finished my lunch. He's about to eat his as soon as we're done recording this show. Tobin Shea, welcome, man.
1: Hi, Rick. Thank you so much for having me today,
0: dude. It's good to have you on. And uh, I was looking through everything ahead of time and redoing it. And, you know, my team can see me, you know, when you can't see me and the faces I was making, I was like, whoa, you know, <laughs> that's like, that's an interesting transition, man, because I certainly like, dang, Tobin's a really, really smart dude, which is awesome. And, <laughs> you know, the genetic disease research, you know, and some of these things, you know, hereditary hemorrhagic uh, this next word, I cannot, I will not get right. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, he- hemorrhagic, sure. But the, what, what, or her, her, her- what, th- okay. I'm going to, sh- I'm going to shut up and <laughs> not try to read these words anymore. I know. Right. But, uh, you know, it's interesting because you developed several patent pending ventilators, right. In response to firearm safety devices.
1: That's. Oh, an- sure. Yeah. Uh, so during COVID-19 pandemic, um, I, I, have some patent-pending uh, ventilator technology to, um, you know, that was a big issue early on. Um, and then in response to some of the, the gun violence we've, we've seen in the U.S., i also invented some firearm safety devices. So di- different issues, but uh, I, I like to think I contributed a little bit to both.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, the ventilators are great, but you're talking firearm safety devices. Now, That this is also my wheelhouse from having a private protection agency before, too. You know, so what, what specific type of safety devices are you looking for?
1: Sure. So, um, I took a pretty unique approach, you know, I think, I think we get into this dichot- dichotomy, especially, you know, mainstream media politics, uh, now, like we either right categorize now. people as, yeah. Right. We either categorize people as, you know, hundred percent unlimited guns for everyone or zero guns, n- never for anyone, no matter what.
0: That seems and, to be um, the way it's presented, isn't it?
1: Exactly. And, and I, you know, I, I don't think, um, I don't think it has to be that way. I mean, statistically, it's, it's just impossible to ignore the, the fact that there are uh, every year hundreds of thousands of uh, violent crimes, uh, assaults, robberies that are actually stopped uh, by firearms. So I, so I think to paint it so black and white is, you know, firearm bad uh, is not quite accurate. However, I do also understand that you know the need and desire to to you know have have some levels of safety and protection integrated. Uh, so the device I came up with uh, was a device that was made for the AR-15 type rifle, and it essentially uh, kind of bear hugs the uh, magazine area and prevents the changing of the magazine uh, unless you can biometrically verify that you are the legal owner of the firearm um you know a lot of times in these crimes it's stolen firearms that are being used or uh you know a, a parent's firearm a grandfather's firearm so uh, by doing this um we cannot disable the firearm's capacity uh to be used in a defensive situation but by preventing the magazine from being changed except by the lawful owner uh you take a lot of the uh you know uh potential dangers out of out of uh you know,
0: said weapon. That's interesting, man. Now you're talking biometrics right now. I'm going to give you real world scenarios here because I have a biometric gun safe right next to my, it's a small safe right next to my bed. Right. Sure. And within it is a Glock 19 ready to go all, already chambered. You know, it's for defense just in case something happens. Right. Of course. The only thing I don't like about it, maybe it's just because of the type that I have, you know, but it's, it takes a little bit you know, to, so I'm comparing this to what you're talking about, like to actually read my fingerprint, you know? And when it comes to that, I mean, I've been trained, of course, you know, I've been licensed to carry in 37 different States that that's great. I've had a, a private protection agency where I could carry full time, even open care if I wanted to, because of the, the, the legality of the business and the protection nature of that, sure. that security role, you know, and two to three seconds is like life-changing. You know, and this is something that I was taught and data shows that somebody can run 21 feet in just a matter of two to three seconds, (laughs) you know, that's all it is. So that's when I look, I was like, can't this thing move any quicker, you know, but then is it quicker to punch numbers in and open the thing, whatever it is, but how does yours change that, you know, because I think it might be different with changing a magazine. You know, because you can obviously take cover real quick. Obviously, I've been trained in these scenarios, you know, to, sure. to, to change out the magazine, but it's still two to three seconds, wouldn't it be, or is yours quicker?
1: Yeah, so uh, you're right. You know, with any technology, there's going to be some some lag time. And, I, you know, I've, I've seen the biometric safes too, usually holding, holding, click. Okay, there it is. Um, so my, my you know, uh, imagined use case would be that you would actually, you know, like you said, your your Glock 19 is... is ready to go locked and loaded next to your bed. Um, you know, an unloaded gun doesn't work. That's, that's just true. Yeah. Or uh, even so a gun with a safety have. on
0: for that matter, because again, or that's, that's precious time. Gun.
1: Yeah, exactly. So uh, my imagined use case would the, the gun would actually be loaded. Um, and the device would not uh, hamper the loading of the gun. Um, mm-hmm. so if you wanted to keep it, you know, hot in a safe, that's fine. And you should have, depending on your state, you know, uh, 10 to 30 rounds um, all ready to go uh, for whatever defense situation you need. Um, that being said, if if someone does steal it, they will have a maximum of 10 rounds of, of, you know, potential damage to inflict before that gun is locked out and now useless to them. So it's not a perfect system. You know, if someone steals it, they would have 10 rounds to inflict some damage, but uh, you look at every live shooter scenario There's mag change after mag change after mag change. Police are getting it under control. So this, uh, again, it's a little bit of a compromise, but the compromise will allow for, uh, a lawful gun owner to, to still be safe and, and defend himself. And it gets, it puts a big wrench in the works of, you know, someone trying to use this for, uh, you know, immoral purposes.
0: No doubt. And I, I know we talked about before the show having the real talk, right? You know, there's not much editing that <laughs> sure, happens sure. <laughs> on the show. And it's because uh, uh, I love the, the non-political conversations about topics that are heavily made political. Yeah, so when, when you mention data, you know, I, I love looking at the data of these things because I'm always just in search for what the actual truth is, you know, and th- then you can formulate an opinion, of course, based upon that. But the, but the no guns to the let them run wild and free, there's really no data that backs up either of those
1: perspectives, is there? No, absolutely not. And, uh, you know, I totally agree with you, you know, and and I think if we're going to find a solution, that means we need to accurately diagnose the problem first. If we just keep making things up that are very emotional, um, and, you know, I understand the the plea by both sides, um, but if we're just going to stay in these emotional arguments, we're not really honing in on the real problem which means whatever solution we come up with isn't actually going to address the problem because we didn't take the time to actually investigate. So uh, I like to look at numbers um, and try to, you know, depoliticize things wherever possible because that, that usually doesn't lead to productive conversations.
0: Depoliticize, then humanize. That's the best way to take it, man. It's a cool conversation we've developed just off of literally three words of your bio. You
1: know, <laughs> <laughs>
0: Firearms no, safety done. devices. know it's it's awesome man i um i take a look back because illinois was talking about data right i I love data illinois was the last state the very last state to hold out on a concealed carry license and it even had to be overturned by the supreme court in 2013 it went all the way to the united states supreme court because the state of illinois very similar politics to california of course in in new york you know which happens to be the state that i'm in here is Illinois. Uh, it's it's interesting because as soon as that was done, you saw a sharp drop in the amount of home invasions. In the data of home invasions, because these were, of course, firearms that the the offenders acquired illegally, you know, whether it was a stolen weapon or something from a family member to perpetuate the crimes. But all of a sudden, There was almost, it was like a playing field leveler. And they were, they started at least, this is perception and opinion now. The data was that home invasions dropped substantially. Then perception of opinions from my side, it's like, well, they can get shot back at now. You know, they're more concerned. You know, it's a, you know, it's, you get into the conversation like, do nuclear deterrence really work, you know, in those scenarios? And it's like, well, it's held things at bay for about 80 years so far. (laughs) The nuclear deterrence, you know, but where's the middle ground on these things? And I love finding that, you know, and I think even in something like what you are in with rare genetic disease research, there's probably data that scatters the whole realm of theories and hypotheses, isn't there? And then how do you settle on something in in any sort of data research project to get to where it's like, hey, this is it?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So in in science too, it's funny, Um, you know, during the COVID-19 pandemic. Science as a weird abstract thing, you know, kind of trust the science. That was such a funny phrase to me. Um, <laughs> you know,
0: I, I just knew what it was going for. Tobin, I like you.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Rick. Uh, it was just a funny phrase to me, like, where is the science? Can I look at the si- You know, it was weird. Um, but in the science, <laughs>
0: Uh, if you're not watching this on YouTube, is- please go at least you know, ch- check out tobin's facial expressions. It's awesome anyways <laughs> <Yes>. continue
1: <laughs> um, you know it, it's just so interesting because you know being you know and i I'm, I'm hardly going to call myself you know in academics but as, as someone who's who's done research uh, and, and spent a lot of time you know learning learning about science nothing is absolute you know um it, Everything is the best leading theory. Data supports the idea that, um, you know, it, it, nothing is nothing is so absolute. And uh, it was weird to see it presented that way uh, in, in the media. But you're right. Everything comes down to the data. The, the best possible idea we have for now. And then usually in a few years, another study comes up and says, okay, wait, maybe that was all wrong because new evidence. So it's this ongoing conversation. Um, and, and it's really not as concrete as uh, you know it's been presented so um, i think that's important for people to understand that most of science is just based on the data what seems most likely is that you know insert hypothesis here or insert theory here
0: for sure and sometimes you take your best guess and then you can get lucky when it comes to data too no joke i was just a
1: lot of times (laughs) yeah yeah that's that's how you know that's the scientific method right you have a hypothesis you which is more or less a guess, you've observed some stuff and you say, Hey, I think this is what's going on. And then you test it and you might be right, you might be wrong, or maybe somewhere in between. Dude, you just uh,
0: uh, don't you I mean, you I love how you're doing the air quotes with the science, right? You know, because it it seems like a lot of the last two years just completely threw the scientific method out the window. Because it, it came to yes, you have a hypothesis out of observation, but then there was never any testing after that. To to either prove or disprove the hypothesis, you know, and I'm, I'm, whether that was, uh, and I'm not going to get, I'm not going to go on a political soapbox with this, but you know, if it was masks, vaccines, whatever, there was near really never any testing to see what the the rates were of transmission or if these things actually functioned. It was just using the data that was made to put in to generate these things, and it's like, okay, here's as you said, the science, you know, what was the science, because the science has to include after a hypothesis, it has to include the testing phase to prove or disprove. Right. Yeah. You know? And then when I said, like, you just get lucky, there's an article I was reading the other day about a, a, a medication that was for endometrial cancer, you know, because now we're back into the, into the disease re, disease research here, right? And they had a hypothesis that was based upon some data. Then they went and tested it and dude, they got freaking lucky because they got so lucky that it cured. Uh, And it was rectal cancer, they used a drug for endometrial cancer, had some data, formulated a hypothesis, then tested it on a group of people, and it was a 100% cure rate. You know, so that was the thing. It's like, we're, we're going to try to prove this. Nobody was ever expecting that because it's never happened before. They got lucky by actually just saying but the only way you got lucky is actually by doing Oh, man, I did. That's true. People have told me, oh, you're just so lucky. I'm like, no, it's momentum. No, it's momentum. But dude, you only get lucky because you actually did it in the first place. You actually took some kind of action.
1: Sure. Yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, you're right that it's one thing to have a hypothesis. It's one thing to go through the testing and then and, and support, you know, your hypothesis and kind of graduate to a, to a theory more or less. And I think in the last two years, especially around COVID, I think, I think two things kind of happened. One, I mean it is it is difficult to do tests, especially when it's um non-laboratory setting. This was this was real people, you know, really experiencing a virus. So uh obviously there's ethical uh I don't want to call them boundaries, but but uh parameters to take into account. Uh, you couldn't, for example, say, Okay, we have hundred people with COVID, we'll treat half of them and not treat the other half. That that's unethical. Yeah, so that does yeah. make it harder to test things like like that, especially when we're going through it now on a you know quite literally pandemic scale so i'll give the scientists a little bit of a slack there uh but the other thing that i won't give the
0: politicians slack though i'll give the scientist i'll give the scientists some slack but not the politicians
1: (laughs) i I agree with you there and that that is my next point science (laughs) also got uh, politicized and i think that is a great disservice and a lot of the big publications uh you know i don't i don't uh, I don't want to name the specific one, but one of them actually came out and said, you know, for our first time and however many decades, so-and-so journal is getting political. And they, they kind of uh, framed that as a good thing. Like we're entering politics. This is a good thing. And I read that. I said, this is horrible science and politics, you know, should have very little to do with each other. Uh, you know, that's just bad when our scientists are going to have, I mean, science, aren't, aren't we trying to eliminate bias, uh, yeah, but then by it. entering politics, we're entering a realm of almost peer bias. So
0: Right on. And that was uh, one of the uh, reasons why NASA stayed private for so many years, too, is because it was Lawrence able to t- have the separation. Of course, there was federal funding that goes into it, you know, to, but that's, that's the beauty of it, isn't it? Isn't that how it's supposed to work, is that private and public are supposed to have this cohesion together in order to do the best for
1: mankind? I, I think so, too, in theory. Uh, in theory, it's a great system and, and, and you know, execution. Usually things don't go as planned. I'll
0: be a little ideological today for you. How about that, Tobin? Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, thanks for indulging me in all that. But yeah, I I appreciate that we're on the same page on all these things too, because it's just the page of truth. You know, it's down the middle. Just give me the hard data. I agree. I agree. You know,
1: I think if everyone was willing to sit down with each other and, you know, put aside the the passion behind, you know, whatever, whatever point they're arguing, I, I think I think the middle ground is a lot more reasonable than people think. And it's, it's easier to arrive there if, if you're willing to give that conversation time today. That's, that's what I like to think.
0: Very eloquently said, my friend. Now, let's shift gears real quick because you've done all these amazing things. And by the way, I, I feel everybody that I'm really talking to a genius right now just because of everything that he's gone Hardly through. Not at all. It's uh, incredible, incredible brain. On, on zoom right now in front of me. <laughs> and, uh, so you went from all of these amazing things, right? You know, rare disease research and firearm safety devices. And now you have something going on with dark web surveillance. You know, that, that's a heck of a shift, man. You know, how, how did that first, sure. we'll get into what you're doing in a minute, but how, why that shift? How'd you make that shift?
1: Sure. So uh, kind of you know, uh, behind the resume, something my whole life that I've been, you know, very interested in, fascinated by is, uh, you, you know, computers and, um, and, and cybersecurity and, uh, you know, kind of all the things going on under the hood that we don't, we don't interact with, uh, on, on every day, like, like the dark web. Um, so certainly while I was, you know, getting educated and stuff, all, you know, all that is, is very transparent on the resume, but, uh, again, behind the scenes, um, I just have this deep fascination for for uh, this sort of stuff, and and uh, you know credit where credit's due. Mostly, our our co-founder is uh, he's he's a real computer genius here, and uh, we actually grew up as as great friends together, and uh, kind of as a pet project. Actually, we were curious. We thought, you know, but by exploring the dark web, we're seeing you know kind of fraud on the industrial scale, really. Yeah, and we were kind of curious. Hey. Are, I wonder how many, how many credit cards do you think are getting sold on the dark web? I don't know. That's a great question. Let's find out. So just as kind of a pet project, uh, you know, my, our, our co-founder, uh, developed a kind of monitoring technology and we're just looking at how, how quickly cards were turning over on the dark web. Um, it's it's very quick by the way. And, um, seconds very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And very, very quickly. We were able to realize this is valuable information we're, we're, we're gathering, um, and this could be helpful information if shared with the right people. Uh, so then we 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 kind of you know built a business model out of it and 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 changed the focus to enriching data to a usable level that we could you know share with with uh, law enforcement and, and, and potential clients as well.
0: That's incredible. So what what were some of the biggest discoveries that you found?
1: Sure. Again, I I think I think when we when we started, we knew yeah, of course, there's some there's cyber criminals, there's hackers, you know, living in basements and. And stuff, but um, when we really started kind of crunching the numbers, I'm talking tens of millions of of cards being sold every year, and that's just credit and debit cards. Yeah. Uh, then we said, well, oh my gosh, there might be even more social security numbers and and you know uh, people's home addresses, phone numbers, you know, just personal identifiable information or, or PII for short, uh, getting sold. And again, it, it just reached this industrial scale that was. Um kind of hard to fathom actually, uh, you know, how much was, was really going on.
0: It's interesting because, I mean, that's my world that I live in, right? Having a cybersecurity company and it's, uh, the dark web is an interesting thing. You know, there was a, a, a documentary that just released a couple of weeks ago that I'm in. It was the sequel to an original called Cybercrime, but this one is called the dark web uncovered. You know, and one of the points oh, okay. that, that I made in it was, you know, the dark web is actually really just where the transaction takes place. You know, and that's where you are having all of your data and research involved with, but then there's also delivery of the goods. You know, I'd be interested even beyond that. I don't know how you would capture this data. You know, you see the credit cards turn over so much on the dark web, but then how long does it take from that to get to the actual fulfillments of the product and the product can be if we're talking real, you know, anything from drugs all the way down to human beings in trafficking.
1: Sure. Yeah, and so we actually, um, we, we briefly, uh, unofficially, it didn't pan out, uh, you know, budgetary issues and, and, you know, whatnot, it's a big machine, but we briefly, uh, helped out with the, uh, United States postal service, uh, and, and delivering or, or and identifying, uh, packages that were used to deliver, uh, you know, illicit substances, mostly drugs, um, <clears throat> kind of funny, little unknown fact, uh, it's, it's theorized that the U.S. Postal Service is, is the largest drug distributor in the world. That wouldn't surprise uh, me. Yeah. And, you know, pros and cons of the Fourth Amendment are, you know, of course, our individual privacy, but it also makes it hard for the government to, you know, do mass, uh, you know, like package scanning and, yeah. and, and, and stuff like that.
0: Especially when it's so, domestic, you know, coming in from overseas, it's a different story because it has to go through customs and that's scanned all exactly. day long. Yeah, Customs,
1: they catch a lot. domestic, they have to have pretty compelling evidence to open a package.
0: You got it. Uh,
1: So you're right. The fulfillment is, is, that's a whole nother crazy process. And, you know, uh, to some extent you can monitor, you know, or try to monitor shipping trends and things like that. Uh, But I I believe it was the Hydra market that was uh, recently closed down this year in a pretty neat uh, multinational uh, campaign. But one of their services was uh, money laundering. So you sent them your Bitcoin and they sent you a, a, no kidding, a a duffel bag of cash. And how they would do it was, um, you know, you'd send them your Bitcoin. Of course, they'd probably take a, you know, 10, 15% fee off the top. And then you would get a message of GPS coordinates and you would go to said coordinates at said day and you would dig up a duffel bag of money. That's the wildest thing ever. That sounds like something out of a movie and they moved I mean, who knows how much money that way, some speculate millions, others speculate billions of money by this crazy drop service of, of bearing duffel bags around the world for, for cyber criminals to launder their money.
0: No joke. You know, I talked to my team a lot here on the, on the cyber side and, you know, nobody within the, the cybersecurity company ha- was involved with my private protection agency, you know, and I, blending those two together. It's exactly what you're talking about. And I would tell stories and be, or just say, well, this kind of stuff goes on and almost all of them are just disbelief, right? No way. No way that's real. Just like you said, it sounds like it's something out of a movie. I'm like, for real, there's a world out there that is exactly what you're saying right now that is still just like some kind of drop from a James Bond movie. You know, this is how this stuff takes place you know, money laundering is still live and well. And by the way, that's why the secret service was actually (laughs) initiated to begin with outside of presidential protection. Most of what the secret service does even to this day has to do with counterfeit money and money laundering. That's the, I think that's like 75% of their budget, man. It's
1: insane. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I think it was an interesting statistic. Um, I think it was about one fifth of the world economy is is uh, thought to be uh, part of the, quote, black economy, you know, illegal things. And that comes out to, oh, gosh, I think it was some like 16 trillion dollars a year was part of the illegal economy. Yeah, uh, that, that's a lot of money. Yep, 16 no trillion doubt. a year. So you bet that there is industrial, you know, uh business going on at that scale to support $16 trillion, you bet there are delivery services and you know, money laundering, cash drops. And, uh, you know, only a fraction of that exists on the dark web. But uh, you know, the point is, it's a big industry and uh, big industries need, you know, uh, large, stable uh, companies to support them and and, and and they exist.
0: Got that right, man. Wow, this is exciting. You know, we, we've had, a, we've gone such through an array of conversation today. (laughs) (laughs) Starting out with three words from your bio about firearm safety, going into genetic research and dark web surveillance, man, you've done so much, you know, it's interesting how you've started to cross all these different thresholds. But I see the common thread across all of them, man. And it's data. Really, if I were to phrase it a different way, it's truth you know, <laughs> that's what I appreciate. It's a, a, about what you're doing. And I can't wait to see what you're going to do next. Now, man, we're gonna, we're gonna stay in touch for sure. And I'm excited to see what what is next. You got to have something cooking up in that amazing ginormous <laughs> brain of yours.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah, no, I, I would certainly love love to stay in contact. But you're right. Uh, data, uh, data truth. And you know, uh, when I meet clients or, or you know, uh, potential investors, fundraising. Uh, I get questions, science background, that's interesting. How'd you get into this? And I always say, you know, um, I'm a scientist first. Uh, Everything we do here at at MindWise, our our cybersecurity fraud prevention company, uh, it's all about the data. It's all backed by data. So scientist first.
0: Brilliant. Website, mindwise.io, check it out. Uh, Connect with uh, Tobin on LinkedIn, it looks like. Tobin Shea, S-H-A. Dude, thanks for coming on today, man. I appreciate the conversation.
1: Thanks so much, Rick. It was great talking to you.